Good morning and happy Sabbath. I want to welcome you all here back to Endeavor Hill. Um, and uh, let's bow our heads as we uh, dive into the Word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I ask that you guide us and direct us. Lord, speak to us now as we desperately need you in these times when families and friends and uh, society as a whole seem split and uh, just always fighting and, and politicking and everything going on. Let this be a place of peace that we can firmly be about you. Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears and whoever hears this message, we just ask that you penetrate our our legalism and self-righteousness and our blindness and save us, Lord, and thank you for your gospel and thank you for uh, Jesus coming and rescuing us in your name. Amen. Today I want to dive into a topic that I've titled Beating the Puppy to Scare the Hound. Seems very harsh. But uh, our topic uh, as we move through Romans, Romans uh, hugs and beats you at the same time. Uh, Paul has a subtle uh, way with his words. Uh, Today we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 2, but more importantly our anchor verses are Romans 2, 1 through 2, verses 1 through 2. You may think that you can condemn such people But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Last week we looked at Romans 1 and and a brief introduction to Romans uh, through the eyes of Martin Luther and why Romans is important. And that is because it burns away any excuse for our legalism. Romans pokes, agitates, and convicts that self-righteous section deep in our hearts. We are saved through faith alone, by simply believing in who Jesus is, what He did, and what He is doing, and what He is going to do. The gospel is the good news that no matter how deep in sin, addiction, struggles, whatever, failure uh, each of us is, there is always a way out. And several of you hopefully are thinking amen to that. It is the proclamation that no matter how broken we are or how much you and I have struggled, there is a better way. Today I want to look at a few things and I want to start with sin for you and I. I want to ask you and I want you to answer me. How are we saved? We should all know that we are saved through faith in Jesus. You've all failed. No, I'm just joking. But last week we talked about salvation through faith alone. We should all know that we are saved through faith in Jesus. Paul is clear on this. There are no buts that but-ums people love to add afterwards. Last week I mentioned the but-um people that we can be and that many other religious people can be. We are saved through faith in Jesus, but um, there are no buts about this, folks. None whatsoever. And we should all be shouting hallelujah for that. What are we saved from? We are saved from sin. Paul is smart. He doesn't just come out of the gate swinging at sin. He comes out and throws the reader a curveball. See, in the Greco-Roman world, which we are part of here in the Western society, we think cause to effect. We would read Romans and write, uh, write as sin, Jesus, salvation. Paul gives away 
in his writing style of Romans just who exactly his intended audience is. The Jewish members of the church in Rome. Semitic thought, which could be stated as Middle Eastern thought, is effect and cause generally. Not always, but generally. If we were to read and write in the Middle Eastern mindset, we would read about salvation, Jesus, then sin, the cause. Can you guess <clears throat> Excuse me. what we have in the epistle of Romans? We have salvation right off the bat. I'm just going to be blunt and say that the largest cause for disruption and conflict in the early church were those who had come out of the Jewish faith. They were so focused on outward appearances, on outward action, on outward worship, on everything exterior, that they often lost sight of what is the most important, and that is what is the interior, the heart. For the early church members who had come from paganism and were considered Gentiles, it was easier for them. They understood the concept of being transformed. They would have looked at Jesus as being a sort of demigod. The Jewish members struggled with this. They came from an extremely legalistic faith and society. <clears throat> Status was everything. Your name and pedigree meant something. How you appeared mattered. What you did, said, said, ate, and who you associated with was of the utmost importance, whether you were rich or poor. In Christianity, you have the blending of these two worlds, the former Jewish world being confronted with the former and blended with the former pagan Gentile world. The Jews would have looked at the liberties of the pagans and judged everything about them. The Gentiles, who had been former pagans, would have looked at the Jews and judged everything about them on being extremely legalistic. Today, we often encounter the same in our very homes and our church bodies. We have those who come from law-centered faiths or spiritual lives who are confronted with members who come from grace-centered faiths and spiritual lives with, uh, with all grace's liberties. Those who are law-centered will often read Romans chapter 1 and end it right there. <clears throat> Verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. Since they thought it foolish to not acknowledge God, uh, or to uh, acknowledge God, I read that right. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never have been done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They became backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's the end there with verse 32. See, see, right there they'll say, in Romans, Paul calls out sin and all those who are fornicators, immoral, and people of the world. People won't even make it past Romans 1 before pointing the finger and blasting everyone with judgment and condemning tones around them. <clears throat> Paul points out what life is like for those outside of the law of God. They have uncontrolled passion. They worship the created, not the creator. They are self-proclaimed 
in their wisdom. They know God, but do not honor him. They do not give God thanks. Their hearts are, are darkened. They are, do not acknowledge God. They are evil, greedy, hateful, envious, and murderous. They are quarreling, deception, malicious behavior. They gossip, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boast, invent new, invent new ways of sinning, disobey their parents, stubborn, break their promises, heartless, and they have no mercy. Paul then hopes that you will understand what life should look like if a person who is inside the love of God. They have controlled passion. <clears throat> Sadly, most people believe Christians are without passion or should be without passions, or you have to give up your passion and what makes you passionate when you become a follower of Christ. But this just is not the case. A person who follows Jesus is extremely passionate or should be. They just have controlled passion. We worship the Creator and not the created. We are suspicious of individuals who are wise in their own eyes. They know God, they pursue God, and they honor Him not with exterior service but from deep within their hearts. You will see a theme emerge in Romans. The exterior following of Christ and the law does not mean the person is actually following Christ or a disciple of Christ. Gives God thanks. A person who, who follows God is one that has hearts that are lightened. They acknowledge God in all things. They are righteous. They are generous with their money and belongings. They love at all times. The, they, they're life-giving, not taking they do not get jealous of other people's success. In fact, they promote it. <clears throat> they have discussions and debates, but not quarreling. They are transparent and accountable and unafraid of it. They talk about things other than each other. They confront face to face and they support each other even when they have to disagree. They will notice here that Christians are not called to be passive aggressive, nor are we called to be Karens. Sorry if your name's Karen. Sorry if, 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 you just feel like you're awesome and you're not. Jesus continually confronted with the love and the issues and problems surrounding him. What is listed by Paul isn't a package deal. You can't simply go through the list of 27 sins and pick out the really bad ones and say, see those people over there, those murderers, those fornicators, those heathens, and you overlook what you yourself go home after church, sit around at lunch and talk about the other members, their problems, their struggles, what they were wearing, their gossip, or what their sons and daughters are doing. We are, excuse me, we are all guilty at one time or another of one or more of the 27 sins listed by Paul. That's why Paul continue on, continues on in chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. He's speaking to us. When you say that you are wicked and, and when they say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice, verse 2, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that this is His kindness and it is intended to turn you from your sin? 
That is the end of verse 4. Isn't that beautiful? I want to ask you, is any of this new to you? God's tolerance, God's kindness, and God's patience that it says right there in the Greek, in the koine, in the, the, the word, it says that He is tolerant, patient, and as is kind towards us, and it is intended to turn us from our sin. This should blow away all of our minds. This concept goes beyond and blasts apart much of our religiosity and practices. This isn't something I am creating all on my own here. Oh, oh Dr. Ferguson, look at him. He's, he's, he's just creating this new concept. No. Paul says this right here. God is tolerant. tolerant. God, he's not cholera. God is tolerant. God is kind. God is patient. So how can we judge? The law, on the other hand, is not patient. The law is not kind. The law is not tolerant. That is why Christ died. The law demanded, Christ provided. I want to repeat that. The law demanded and Christ provided. Individuals and church bodies that stand by the law, even those that acknowledge Christ, Jesus, and Jesus as Christ, but put point past him and at the law will unfortunately reflect the law in all its harshness. The law demanded a brutal sacrifice in order to obtain forgiveness. You can't get around that. Christ died a brutal death in order to obtain forgiveness for us. Paul goes on and hits the nail right on the head, pointing to the greatness of sin of all. And he continues on here in verse 5. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now I want to pause here in verse 5. God's not angry with you. He's angry at sin. It's as simple as that. Continuing on verse 6. <clears throat> he will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. The greatest sin of all is blind, stubborn, judgmental heart that is harsh, self-righteous, and self-preserving. The one that is unkind, impatient, and intolerant, and often labeled with God. The greatest sin of all is to follow God from fear and empowerment. Fear of judgment and destruction. Fear of not living anymore. And empowerment of joining an elite, elite group. Those chosen or elect. This isn't following God from what David says, a broken and contrite heart in Psalms 51. This is following God from a desire of self-preservation. Every disciple and follower of Jesus needs to ask, Why do I follow Jesus? Why do I read my Bible every day? Why do I attend religious or worship services and connect groups every week? Why do I give financially? The why is the most important aspect of our lives. Is it 
from fear of judgment, destruction, and not displeasing God, a desire to be an elect or a chosen? Or do you follow God out of love, seeing a clear and logical meaning for life, seeing a way for a better life? Do you follow God because He fixes your deep inner brokenness? He loves you even in the midst of your toughest addictions, your greatest struggles. I love what Martin Luther points out in his commentary on Romans. The righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. Again, they are, I just really want to pause right there. The righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. Again, they are eager to recognize the good things in others and disregard those of their own. On the other hand, the unrighteous look for the good in themselves and for the evil in others. <clears throat> and here is a mistake which most people make. When they see how other sinners are punished, they are glad and say, Well and good, the punishment is just. That evildoer deserved it. In reality, however, they should become afraid and confess, That person was punished yesterday, and tomorrow it may be my turn. According to the prover, the proverb, the prover, According to the proverb, the puppy is punished to terrify the hound. Today's culture is filled with finger pointing, with judgment, with argument over what is sin, what isn't sin, what is acceptable, tolerant, and the list could go on. We are so quick to point out what scripture says is sin that we do not overlook at what is good. The Bible is not a collection of stories about what is bad. It is a collection of accounts about a broken people who cannot get it together and are saved despite their sin and brokenness. Who encounter the gospel. I want to try something that is always good in order to make the Bible speak to us. First, I'm going to read a section of Romans as it is in, says in Scripture in the Bible. Then, we are going to read it through by changing who it is addressed to. We're going to read uh, Romans 2, 17-24 first. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what He wants. You know what is right because you have been taught His law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and te teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but you steal. Verse 22. You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You condemn idolatry, but you use items stolen from pagan temples. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. Excuse me. Verse 24. No wonder the scriptures say, The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Now I want to make it relevant to us. And I want to say that this practice is a good practice in your journaling and your own personal devotions. Read through something and make it personal by, by changing who it is addressed to. Don't change too much. Now let's make it relevant to you and I. You, who call yourselves Christians, are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what He wants. You know what is right because you have been taught His law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach, ch teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but you steal. You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you not commit adultery? 
You condemn idolatry, but do you not use items the world idolizes? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the non-Christians blaspheme the name of God because of the Christians. And how true that is. That hits home, doesn't it? Especially that last part. The non-Christians blaspheme the name of God because of you. Gandhi once said that I, I would follow this man of Jesus, paraphrasing him, but Gandhi once said that I would follow Jesus if it were not for uh, his followers. When Jesus came to Israel, Judaism was all about morality versus immorality. Being morally superior meant to which level you followed God's law. The success in your life and the lack of struggle was believed to be the measure of God's blessing of you, approving of you and your lifestyle. Then Jesus comes and destroys Israel's paradigm. The gospel is about defeating sin, not about promoting morality. The gospel is not about being morally superior. It is about believing in a superior power. The gospel does not set us apart. It brings us together from separation. Jesus comes to a morally superior society and says, You know what? You have completely missed the point. In fact, your moral superiority is self-righteous. See, moral superiority is what killed Jesus. He was good enough. He didn't meet the standard, though. And so he had to go. The leaders made the morally superior decision to crucify Jesus. Better one man dies than the entire nation. Paul came from this bunch of morally superior people. He even says that in the book of Hebrews, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee without equal. Yet, he also says that he is chief among sinners. How? How is Paul, who we regard as one of the the highest apostles, as chief among sinners? It is because of the gospel. Rahab was a prostitute that collected secrets, yet when she was confronted with the power of God, She did an immoral thing and lied in order to protect the Israelite spies. She was blessed because she demonstrated faith in God. Tamar posed as a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, and he had his child. Yet she is considered blessed because she had faith in God. Ruth was a Moabite whose family pursued and worshipped other gods, yet she demonstrates vast amounts of faith when she follows Naomi provides for Naomi, risking sexual assault and harassment and lays at Boaz's feet because she had faith. These women who the law deemed immoral, God blesses. God transforms and even includes in the line of the Savior of the universe, Jesus. Jesus sat down and ate with Gentiles and sinners, while the morally superior leaders sat outside passing judgment. Jesus sat as a at a well with a woman who had been married and divorced four times and was cohabitating with her partner, a man, and Jesus asks her for water. And she becomes the very reason an entire town was saved. She was far from moral. Jesus stood up for a woman who had actively engaged in an affair with a married man. Jesus stood against the morally superior crowd. Jesus let a prostitute hang around the disciples, even letting her wash his hair, uh, feet with his hair, while the morally superior judged. Jesus says that those who aren't sure if they've fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the imprisoned, and helped the helpless are saved, Jesus then re- rejects the morally superior righteous. Circumcision is not a matter of the heart, it is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law, is what Paul says. 
It is easy to sit in our cars listening to our contemporary Christian music, looking out at the world and pointing the finger at it. It is easy to walk through the stores and judge what everyone is wearing. It is easy to go to church and focus on what everyone else is saying and doing and storing up for later conversations. It is easy to pass those that are struggling and down and uh, addicted and, and standing on the sides of the roads, panhandling and point the finger in judgment at them. It is easy to post on social media what the Bible says is sin and to condemn all those who don't believe. And you know what? It is easy for Jesus to stand among those we reject, to kick out of our churches, to avoid and judge and point the finger at, because at least they know they are broken. I'm going to share a story with you that is stuck with me. A senior pastor accepted a call to a, pa- uh, to a church that was struggling in one of America's largest cities in California. I also heard of a, excuse me, I heard of a pastor in Dallas doing this of a very large church. The church was struggling with a steady decline in membership and financial giving and was facing constant conflicts and tensions among leaders and members. The pastor got with the chairman of the board and a few other members of the board and elders and, and laid out his plan. He would dress up as a homeless man, complete with smelling like alcohol and being dirty. He would wait outside the morning of the services and have a sign asking for assistance. Then he would walk into the church and attempt to worship. So the morning came and the pastor was up even before the sun was up. He prayed with his wife. She could barely stand to get close to him. He was wearing his gym clothes and had splashed liquor on a jacket, thrown dirt on it and smudged his face and hadn't washed his hair for a few days. So it was greasy. He put coconut oil in his hair and beard in order to appear even more greasy. He had his wife drop him off outside the church early even before the sun was up and he sat on a bucket, cardboard uh, cardboard sign in hand a beat-up sleeping bag, and waited. People came by and donated. A man walking his dog, a kid on a skateboard, yet out of 200 people that walked and passed by him, only two people came over and gave him money from the church. After a while, the homeless pastor walked into the lobby of the church. Suddenly, one of the elders came up and told him they didn't have any handouts and asked if they could help him. He said he just wanted to use the bathroom. So the elder followed the man and stood in the corner while the pastor used the bathroom. After walking back to the lobby, the pastor asked for the church service, about the church service, and the elder made up every possible excuse as to why it wouldn't be viable for him to go in and worship. People in the lobby stared and made comments to each other. The pastor went ahead and walked into the main sanctuary just in time uh, to the song his wife was singing for special music. He stood for a moment and then was ushered by another elder to sit in the very back. People stared and whispered at each other. Once he sat down and listened to more of the song service, the pastor noticed a group of elders looking over at him and whispering to themselves. The chairman of the board got up at the front of the church and announced the coming of a new pastor. He said that the pastor had been delayed and asked if the pastor was here yet. The homeless pastor got up and started walking down the very middle aisle of the church. An elder quickly stood to stop the pastor The chairman lifted his hand and said it was okay and to let the man forward. The church was completely quiet as the homeless man walked up the steps of the platform. The chairman reached out and shook his hand and gave him a hug and said, Man, you smell absolutely horrible, but it's good to have you here. And he laughed. The pastor took a minute and stared at the audience. He then took off his jacket 
and his wife, asked his wife to bring forward his Bible and his sermon. I believe any longer and you would have kicked me and Jesus out, he said, and he prayed. What is sin for you and I? I want you to go back and look at the list of the 27 sins listed by Paul, and it will give you a good idea. It is a complete and utter separation from God. It is in our DNA, though. No matter how righteous or right we feel, how law-abiding, how holy we might be, we will always be sinful sinners. This is the doctrine of original sin. We don't have to be murderers to be guilty of sin. How does sin relate to myself and others? We are all in need of being saved, and I hope you realize that. We are all in need of Jesus. Sin does not separate us based on being moral or immoral people. Moral people crucified Jesus, while immoral people struggled to follow him. It isn't our job to judge sin. Sin is always there. The Bible is clear on sin. Our job is not to transform others. God brings people to repentance and transformation through the Holy Spirit, through tolerance, kindness, and patience. Our job is always to love. No matter who walks through those doors, who asks us for money, who sits at our table, who lives differently than us, screams and shouts obscenities, our job is to love the sinner and not the sin. Our job is to live as Jesus. If we aren't careful, we will end up kicking those people out with Jesus. Father in heaven, I come to you in Jesus' name. Jesus, if I love you, my will always seek you. Can I continuously search after you unless my love for you is kept alive? Do we love you because you are good and you alone do us good? It is right that you should not notice us, Lord. We are horrible and selfish, but we are here seeking you. And we find you where there is no wrath that devours us, only love. You stand a solid rock between the scorching sun and our soul. And we live under the cool side as those redeemed. When our minds act without you, Lord, they think nothing but deceit and delusion, even while using your name. When our affections act without you, nothing is seen but dead works. We need you to live in us, Jesus, for we have no natural eyes to see you. But we live by faith in one whose face is brighter than a thousand suns. When we see that all that sin is in us, all shame belongs to us, let us know that all good is in you. Let me see that you are clearly Lord seen and present when you shine over all of our own works and actions. You humble us, Lord. Jesus, may we always distrust ourselves in order to see our deep need and hopeless condition without you. In your name, amen.